0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thankful for this team that was up here on the platform this morning leading us to the throne of God's grace and not obscuring the view. I don't know about you. I got caught up. I just love to gather with God's people and to respond and to sing things as one voice, as one people, that which is true about our God. And we're going to continue to do that this morning as we worship together by walking through his word. So let me start off with a very bold and yet uh, sobering declaration. It goes like this. Every single one of us is going to face death. And that's true. Or, let me state it another way. We're all gonna die! Now, context is key. Either you encounter that truth in the first hearing, or you encounter the truth in the second hearing. And my sense, as I have been prayerfully preparing for this week, is that there are people in this room from both camps. There are some of you that understand that death is an impending inevitability and you are unfazed by it. And then there are some of you that think, oh my goodness, it's coming. It's coming. And you don't know what to do. And so this morning, I think is perhaps the most practical and pertinent text we could possibly study for you. Now, Maybe as you go through life between the Sundays, you have caught yourself allowing your mind to wander. And maybe church has even come up into your mind and you've thought to yourself, this is sort of a weird thing that we do as people who go to church. I mean, you don't do this really any place else where you get together with a whole bunch of people that you would never be caught dead within a restaurant and you sing songs together. When, when do you do that? And then you listen to one guy get up and give a teaching lecture from a really old book. Isn't that kind of weird? Well, it is, unless it also happens to be the most important thing happening in the cosmos. And it is. So I grant you, I concede that it's a bit strange, but I would not be any place else if I possibly could. Because here's what we're talking about. We're talking about death, and it is something that impacts every single one of us. And we're gonna see this morning that death is gonna be contrasted with something that every one of us needs fundamentally and foundationally. See, because death is something that happens to us that was never supposed to have occurred. Death is this, unnatural rending asunder of body and soul and we were never created for that we are created in God's image to resemble to reflect him we are the height and the pinnacle of God's creation did you know that scripture says that that means that God doing his very very best could not create anything more wonderful than a human being You probably never thought about it that way because you know a bunch of human beings and you go, (laughs) yeah, not so much that one. It's okay, they think that about you too. It's all fair. (laughs) The height of his creation is a human being and yet something occurs and body and soul is separated and it grieves the heart of God. Well, we have been walking through the gospel of John and at long last, we have arrived in chapter 11. And I will tell you, this text is so near and dear to my heart. I heard this text preached many, many years ago, decades ago. And I sat there, wrapped, and I thought, if I don't give my life for the rest of my life to preaching God's word about God's son, then I will die inside. And it came from this passage. And that's a bold, transparent declaration, but I make it unapologetically. We are gonna be in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And what we're gonna learn from this passage this morning is very simple, our bigger idea, the entire thrust of the text goes like this, is that glory is better than death. Glory is better than death. And I will explain that and unpack that a little bit more in detail as we go along so that you don't think, oh, my glory. Well, I'll nuance that, but we are in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. Now, we're going to spend some time this morning, as much time as I can get, uh, walking through the first 44 verses of John 11. And I'm just going to walk through the passage. I wish I could read the whole thing in one shot and then go back. don't really have the time for that, so I'm just going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to sort of unpack it as we go, and then we'll see if we can apply it at the end. So John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Through chapters seven, eight, nine, and 10, we were in Jerusalem, this one long narrative where Jesus is confronting the leaders of Israel. He is facing down religion. Man's attempt to achieve, obtain, and earn right standing before a holy God. And Jesus has looked it square in the eye and said, no, no, that's not it, I'm it. And at the very end of chapter 10, Jesus has crossed the Jordan, gone into Perea, and he is teaching, and he's bringing people to faith. While he is in Perea, across the Jordan, something's going to happen. A man named Lazarus is ill. This is different from Lazarus that is in Luke's gospel in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Interestingly, Lazarus is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word or the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar, which means God is my help. Not accidental, not coincidental. We're told in verse 1, this is the village, Bethany is, of Mary and her sister Martha. Bethany is exactly two miles to the east of Temple Mount. You go east up over the Mount of Olives, you go down, and there is the village of Bethany. This is a a village of rest and recreation for Jesus, apparently throughout his earthly ministry. And he's a a frequenter of their home. He knows them well. He loves them deeply. How do we know that? Well, verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. This is interesting, because the anointing of Jesus' feet has not actually happened yet in the sequence of John's gospel. That won't happen until chapter 12. So why is John telling us that this is that Mary here in chapter 11, so that... We understand that she deeply loves Jesus. And so that we understand that Jesus deeply loves her. This is going to set us up for what Mary's going to do in chapter 12. Yes, Mary anoints his, his feet w- and with oil and she wipes it with her hair. Why would, Whoa, that is a skit. Why would she do that? Ah ha, ha Because chapter 12 comes after chapter 11. Now, as a point of clarification, virtually everybody in the ancient Near East about this time, if you were a female, you're named Mary. There's like, I don't know, carry the one. There's like 600 Marys in the New Testament for some reason. There's a lot of reasons for that. Number one, people were naming their daughters after Moses' sister Mariam. And the Hasmonean family that we talked about last week, one of their daughters was Mary. And so everyone got named Mary because she was a hero of Israel. So there's Mary this, Mary that, Mary mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary, all these different Marys. This is Mary's sister of Martha. This is a different Mary that anoints Jesus' feet up in Galilee as is told in Luke chapter seven. In that anointing of Jesus' feet by a woman named Mary, what are the odds? That's Mary Magdalene, it happens at the house of a Pharisee in chapter seven in another part of the nation. This Mary, we're told, deeply loves Jesus and is loved by Jesus. So verse three, so the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. That's it. Probably sent an actual physical runner to go and tell Jesus up north. They're in Bethany. Perea is up in the north across the Jordan. The one you love is ill. They don't include any urgency. They make no request. Please come now. They just know that Jesus loves Lazarus so much that he's probably going to do something about it. He's probably going to respond because that's Jesus' character. Verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death except that it does. Except that it does. Now is Jesus wrong? Is he a liar? Absolutely not. He's got a bigger perspective that he invites us into. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let me, let me try as, as best as I can to, to, to make this text fall into your lap. Jesus is saying this illness is a serious deal and it will only death. Even though well, Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. In fact, by the time that Jesus leaves Perea and goes to Bethany, Lazarus will have died. But Jesus is going to say something here. I'm going to show you something so spectacular that by the time I'm done, even those that are closest to Lazarus, even those who love Lazarus best will be glad that he's died. I'm gonna show you something so glorious, so unbelievably amazing, that by the time I'm done, you will be glad that he's dead. Now what in the world could that possibly be? We're being set up for the truth that glory is better than death. And bigger than death. Verse five, now, just to make sure we understand that this chapter is about love, that this chapter is about God's love for us and by, or for them and by extension us, John's readers, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is one of those rare occasions when you read your Bible that you are actually supposed to insert yourself into the narrative. You're Lazarus, you're Mary, you're Martha. You are these people. Verse six, I don't know if you're the kind of person that takes notes or makes markings in your Bible. If you're not that kind of person, become one today. Become that person. If you're afraid about ruining your pristine Bible, I'll get you another, and I'm not kidding. Make a mark. The very first word of John chapter 11, verse 6 is the key to the entire narrative, and it's a quite boring word. It goes like this. So, or your Bible might say, therefore. In Greek, it is un, and it is the entire thrust of the passage, circle, John 11, verse 6, first word is so or therefore. And if you have a Bible that does not include that word, take it in both hands and throw it far from you and get a different translation. John chapter 11, verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let me make sure we're catching the hinge. Verse 6 is the result of verse 5. Let me, let, me re- let me rewind. Verse five, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore he stays and let him die. Jesus loves these two women and their brother, and he loves them so much that he's going to let Lazarus die. Therefore he stays. Now, our world cannot possibly understand nor grasp this. Because in our world thinking death is the final mystery, the unknown, the great fear. What kind of a cruel man would allow someone to die if he had the power to stop it? Why would this happen? This is the ultimate evil. The Bible says Jesus loved them, so he waited two more days. That so is the absolute key interpretively to this entire passage. Verse 7, then after he said to, to the disciples, let's go, let us uh, go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, <clears throat> you, you remember chapter 10, right? They were trying to kill you again and again and again. They've been trying to stone you. They want to kill you there, Jesus. Why would we go to Judea? They've been, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. This makes no sense. Jesus answered in a completely Jesus-like way. It is cryptic, it is Christ-like, it is, huh? And you know that Jesus says something, I'll go, well, yeah, 12 hours in the day. <laughs> you ask him. I'm not asking him. He says in verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now, by the way, they don't know what hours are back in this time. They have a sundial, quite literally. They don't have seconds and minutes and measure precise hours. An hour changes every season. They, they have a sundial that marks out how much time of light is there in a day, and they divide that by 12. So if you have a shorter day, you have shorter hours. So Jesus is not making a scientific textbook declaration of there are 60 seconds, 60 minutes, 12 hours. He's not doing that. He's saying there, everyone knows there is so much light. There is so much light in a day. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Jesus is hearing the guys going, whoa, 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 master, teacher, rabbi. If we go there, they'll kill you. And Jesus goes, no, they won't. I got this because it's still day. Referring to his earthly ministry, my time is not yet come. Therefore, I am utterly bulletproof. I am invincible There is such a divine hand of protection on me. Nothing in the cosmos can harm me until it's my time because it's still daytime. But the sun is setting. The darkness is coming. But until that time, I am not afraid. But if anyone walks, verse 10, in the night he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus knows that the time of his stumble, no, this does not mean sin. This means the time of his falling. His death is rapidly approaching. After saying these things, he had said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Jesus is using euphemism. Why? To try to convey to us what death really is. It's a big deal. Make no mistake. It was a really big deal to Lazarus. I've heard people say, well, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, Lazarus, I mean, he's going to rise again. Lazarus doesn't know that. Lazarus is laying on his bed... Man, put yourself in the story, if you're Mary and Martha, you're watching him heave, you're watching him gasp, he's about to die, ah, he's dead. But Jesus is saying something, it's like going to sleep. Because death doesn't have to be the end. It's all a matter of time, and Jesus is gonna speak to this here in just a moment, it's all a matter of time. It's just about sleep, He's, he's going to sleep oh, it's a big deal, and we're gonna see Jesus get really emotionally reactionary about death here in a moment. But right now, he's just saying, look, it's, it's about sleep. He, he's gonna, I'm gonna go there to wake him up. The disciples said to him, oh, Yahtzee, then we don't have to go to Jerusalem because you know, that's where they're throwing rocks at people right now. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, listen, Lazarus, is about to die he's sick and if we don't hurry he's gonna die Lazarus has died Jesus stays put until Lazarus is dead apparently right after they send the messenger Lazarus dies verse 15 and so for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Remember, the entire thrust of John's gospel is so that you will believe. It's this wonderful thing. God does a thing. God calls. People respond. And there's a human responsibility to believe. It is both and. That's why John writes his gospel so that... You will believe, and if you are a believer, that you will intensify in your belief so that all of your weight will come into the center and you will stand on the finished work of Christ on the cross, because if you're like most believers, there's still one of two toes we've got hanging over here on our own strength. John says, nah, 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 so that you will believe all the way, so that you will believe. Well, verse 16, so Thomas, called Didymus, or Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him, well, is this Thomas saying, let us go also, that we may die! Or is this Eeyore, let's go too, that we may die. <sighs> we'll pin the tail on Thomas. Because this is not brave nor gallant. We've already been told that they know that Jews are throwing rocks in Jerusalem. Nobody wants to die, period, or die that way. It's a death of shame and guilt and misery and sorrow and anguish for you and your entire family. And we know that Thomas does not yet believe because the entire climax of the Gospel of John we find later when it is Thomas who will say, my Lord and my God. But Thomas does not yet believe. He does not fully understand what is happening. So Jesus does not even rebuke Thomas, at least is the way John records it. He just says, let's go, boys. Y'all get in the truck. Verse 17, now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Why does John tell us this? Because in Jewish tradition, they believed that when a person died, the spirit of that person would hover over the body for three days, and there was still a chance for that person to be resuscitated. But on the fourth day, mm, decomposition is too far gone, decay, the spirit has to finally go away. Jesus waits for the fourth day. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now this is not people who are deeply emotionally connected to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are professional mourners. They are there to wail loudly, to affirm that Mary and Martha should be grieving. Their grief is an expression of love and so these people are professional criers and yes, even though I'm saying that out loud, I'm realizing Mike Hall just got another business idea. Not saying we should have professional mourners in our society, I'm just saying that's what was happening back then. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Jesus never even makes it to Bethany. Martha goes out to him to intercept him on his way. Martha said to Jesus, She knows this Jesus, she knows that he's good, she knows that he's powerful, she knows that he's done signs and wonders, and so she is sweetly submissive, and yet, she is deeply in grief and sorrow. It's still very fresh to her. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. (laughs) You you ever been there? Man, I have. Let me translate what Martha's actually saying. Lord, where (laughs) were you? Where were you on this one? I prayed, I was good, I was moral, I was decent. Why would you let this bad thing happen to me, a good person that you love, who is trying to love you back? Why would you let this bad thing happen? If you really loved me like you say you love me, you would not have let this bad thing happen. And Jesus responds to her with truth. It's almost unemotional. It's very stoic, very sort of just conversational. Listen to how Jesus responds to Martha with truth. She says, she continues on, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Yes, I I, I know that you're something special and God can do something and you can too, but look, it's four days. We've kind of missed our window here. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. It's one word. histemi. Again, stand, rise again. It's where we get our name, Anastasia. It means to resurrect, to rise again. Your brother will rise. And she says, uh, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Every Jewish uh, believer uh, of Judaism understood that at the end of all things, there would be a great grand resurrection of the wicked and the holy, from Daniel chapter 12. They all believed that one day, way off in the future, God would do something incredible, hard to imagine, it's abstract, it's ethereal, it's out there, and one day, everybody will be resurrected. Yeah, I get that. One day, God's gonna do a thing, and he's gonna make all of the sad things come untrue. I get it, but it hurts now. (laughs) Jesus, oh, verse 25, he said to her, one of his final I am statements. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Martha, come here, get close. Martha, Martha, come here. I love you so much that I'm gonna tell you the truth. You think that God's gonna do a thing one day to make all the sad things come untrue? You think it's just gonna be some power that God will wield? It's me not some, it's me, I'm a person, I'm God. And just to show you that I have power over life and death, I'm going to raise your brother. Oh, you, you don't understand that yet. I'm going to show you that Martha, it's not about a faith construct. It's not about what you believe. It's about me. I'm a person. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe, will experience what I am about to show you. And he responds to her with truth. It's an amazing encounter. And everyone, verse 26, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then she gives the good confession, similar to Peter in Matthew sixteen sixteen. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Good answer, Mary, or Martha, that did not come to you from flesh and blood. Now, verse 26 when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he's, well, he's asking for you. God, the tenderness, she tells her privately, not because it's a secret. She whispers, he's looking for you. Have you ever been there? Because I have. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. John wants us to understand that Jesus keeps getting thwarted. He keeps getting intercepted on his way into Bethany, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. In other words, he hadn't taken too many steps when here comes a Mary running. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So she is weeping and sobbing in sorrow and grief already. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." Two very different people saying the exact same thing. Now they're sisters, and quite clearly, they are wringing their hands, watching Lazarus die, and then once Lazarus dies, they're saying this: "Where's Jesus? Man, where's Jesus? If he'd have been here, he wouldn't have died." And it's the exact same statement, but yet said totally differently. Lord, where were you? If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. I'm trying to love you back. You say that you love me, but where were you on this one? You let him die. By the way, do you know how many people in the world today, in a population of about seven and a half billion people, are praying that God will save them or their loved ones? Do you know how many people will be disappointed? The vast majority because I want you to think about this for a moment. If God answered every person's prayer the way they wanted, we would have about 70 billion people on the planet. And we sort of know that intuitively, and we're like, yeah, 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 I get that, but he had better answer mine, because I was in church on Sunday, because I pay my taxes, because I don't speed through school zones unless I'm late. Well, were you on this one, Jesus? And she is sobbing. It's fascinating to me. Jesus does not answer her with truth. Jesus responds to her with emotion. Because they're different people, do you see? Mary gets emotion. Martha got truth. Mary's going to get this unbelievable display of, of pathos. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He... Was deeply moved and greatly troubled in his spirit. Wah, wah, wah. Now, nobody knows quite how to translate this because it is so surprising and shocking. The word is onomatopoeia, it sounds like what it is. When Jesus sees Mary weeping and all the Jews weeping, he's enraged, he's furious. He has great wrath. It is the sound that a charging war horse makes as it goes into battle. It is the sound a brawler makes when he's in the midst of a fight. What in the world? Jesus is not angry with Mary. He's not even angry with the Jews and their misunderstanding. Jesus is demonstrating something so incredibly beautiful He's depicting his own fury and rage at sin and death and the consequences thereof. And he sees the sorrow and the suffering and the grief and it was never supposed to be this way. And he's furious, he's enraged. And he's snorting, the word is snorting like a warhorse. I don't know if this is what you think about when you think about Jesus, but rethink your thinking. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? He doesn't even respond to her. He just responds with emotion and with pathos. He was deeply moved and his spirit greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And yes, the shortest verse in our English Bible, Jesus wept. Now this is a different word. This is not the loud wailing of the mourners where they're just making as much noise as they can to demonstrate their seriousness, This is the word for tear. He just cried. He sees the scene, he sees the tomb, and it just breaks him. He just cries, silently. You ever been there? Because I have. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Wow, they're beginning to get it. Wow, this Jesus loves this guy then why did he let this bad thing happen to this good man? I I don't understand, they say. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Oh, there it is. I get that Jesus is powerful, but I'm not so sure that he's good. In other words, I know that God can do this, but I'm not so sure that he will. You ever been there? Because I have. And this text is a resounding response. I know that God can. I'm not so sure that he will. Well, he will. Maybe and probably not like you want or expect, but he certainly can and he absolutely will. I'm yelling, I'm sorry. Verse 38. Here we go. Here's the scene. Then Jesus snorted again. It's the same exact word. He growls. He's enraged. He's furious. He's deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. They would carve a little rut and they have this disc, this stone carved in the shape of a disc and they would roll it in front of the mouth of the cave. You know what John is doing? (laughs) John is creating a boxing rink. It's about to be a toe to toe, no holds barred, fight to the death. It is Jesus versus death. It is David versus Goliath. No person ever has escaped this champion he is a billion plus a billion plus a billion plus a billion plus a billion and oh he's never lost save it i know about elijah and enoch something happened they're no longer with us everybody ever has been transferred from mortality to immortality and i'm betting whatever happened to enoch and elijah probably hurt see also chariot of fire okay Everybody has to experience death. We're all going to die. And Jesus toes to toe with death. And it's as though death says, oh no, you don't. You take him out of here, then I take you. And Jesus says, I know. Bring it. Here are the two fighters, the two champions of all cosmic arrival coming together and Jesus says let me just give you a foretaste of how this is going to go in the long run I'm going to give you a quick little picture that you can process just in the near term so that you understand what I will do in the long term Jesus said take away the stone the sister of the dead man said to him Martha because she's super practical she says Um, Okay, Jesus, you you may not know this, but it's been like four days. He's decomposing. He's decaying. He's going to smell like the youth ministry on a Wednesday. (laughs) You you don't want to go, you don't want to do that. Martha, Martha, Martha. By this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days, just to make sure we know he's dead, dead. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, because glory is better than death. That's the whole point. Did I not tell you? Wait, watch, and see, Martha. I'm about, to, I'm about to demonstrate who and what I am. Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus, oh, it's so good. They lifted up the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. It's the exact same verb. They lift the stone. He just lifts his eyes. I want you to see this. I want you to be there. And he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. This is a little bit cocky and arrogant on Jesus's part. He's about to talk trash to death. Woo-hoo-hoo. I know that you always hear me because we've always been in constant contact and communication, always, forever. I know. But I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you sent me so that they can see who you are, what you do, what you're like. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Two words in Greek Lazarus come out fights over Goliath's dead that's it fights over Goliath falls do you see the connection there the undefeatable giant has fallen with a word from the king and there will come a day when he will say it again and death will ultimately be eradicated now Lazarus has to wait four days everybody since the time of Jesus has had to wait years and years and centuries and millennia and you and I might have to as well but the point is it doesn't matter it doesn't matter four days, four millennia it's all the same it's irrelevant to God if he can do it for Lazarus he can and he will do it with you and the very fact that your spirit is already raised to walk in newness of life is a proof that if he can do it with your spirit he can and he will do it with your body You're not supposed to spend all eternity in heaven playing a harp on a cloud as a disembodied woo. No, 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 no. You were made for this world and this world was made for you. So Jesus says, oh, Lazarus, come out. And as St. Augustine said, if he didn't use that first word in the two Greek command, Lazarus, come out, then everybody ever would have jumped up and said, (laughs) woo. And that will happen one day. And the dead in Christ shall rise first with the shout of an archangel. He will say it and you and I will rise. Here's your proof. The man who had died came out, (laughs) going, that was the weirdest thing ever. There I was. Me and Moses, we're playing canasta, and all of a sudden, you, he comes out. And here's the crazy thing. John tells us a bunch of details here in verse 44 that we cannot miss. The man who had died, he wasn't sick, he wasn't sleepy, he wasn't mostly dead all day, he was dead dead. Okay? The man who had died came out. Why did he come out? Because he was alive. Make no mistake, because he was alive. His hands and feet bound with linen strips. Why does John tell us that again? Because this wasn't Lazarus' doing. Lazarus heard the call and he responded. He didn't argue and go, I'm not so sure. I want. He comes forth because Jesus calls him and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, I'm so glad this is in verse 44, unbind him and let him go. Because that's what King Jesus does to people. He unbinds them and lets them go, even now while they live. Not just one day when they die, even now he unbinds them. He sets them free. He lets them go. I don't have much time, but I'm gonna give you five quick principles and summary and conclusion for this. Just five super quick conclusions. I'll be brief. Number one goes like this. Love means giving someone what they need most. It's a good principle for parenting, for being married, for having friends, for living in the world. Love means giving someone what they need most. See, God is not a genie because genies don't exist, He does not grant wishes. Doesn't ever do that. He loves us so much that he will always sovereignly direct our lives so that we will always have access to that which we need most. He's our maker and he really and truly does know what we need more than we do and he loves us so much more than we even love ourselves that he will give us what we need most even if it hurts us now. You don't think it hurt Mary and Martha? You don't think it hurt Lazarus? Oh, It hurt they got to see something incredible. So, so what exactly do people need most? Point number two. What people need most is the glory of God. It's what people, in all corners of our globe, what people need most is the glory of God. It's the whole thrust of the passage. What we are missing most in our lives is the glory of God. It's been diminished in our lives because of the presence of sin. But Christ has come. It's what Martha says coming into the world and he has made God's glory manifest and he has brought it and he has showed it and he has shared it and he has offered it to us freely so that he calls us yes but the responsibility is ours to believe all of our human struggles are essentially because we are at one level or another glory starved and so God says you're starving I'm going to give you all of my glory freely but sometimes hard things have to occur so that we can have what is much, much better. In fact, what is best. God loves us best by giving us himself, not the stuff of this life. Please, Christian, please, non-Christian, do not ever evaluate how much God loves you by how much stuff you have or how happy or how healthy you are. Instead, evaluate how much does God love you by how much of God do you have because of how much God has offered. That's how God loves us best, by giving us himself. It's been said that there are many Christians who would be totally fine going to heaven even if God was not there. I would contend those are not Christians at all because they missed the point. God himself is the point. Glory is better than death. Third point, why do bad things happen to good people? (laughs) I get it. It's not really a principle, but it is an incredibly common question I hear all the time in pretty much every human being ever. But it's a flawed question because there are no good people. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. There are no good people. No, not even one. Everything that happens in a fallen world apart from faith is bad. It is sin. We live in a fallen world, and yet... God works all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8:28. and all of the evil that does occur, God superintends for his glory and our good. That's Genesis 50, 20. He is that powerful, he is that loving. But we as a species and as Christians can encounter and experience difficult situations, armed with a glorious answer to a flawed question. So it's a flawed question, but there is yet a biblical answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? Point four, God allows death so that we can see the extent of his power and the depth of his love. I don't know what you're incur- encountering. I don't know what's coming across your, your life. Maybe it's death of your, of your, of your own uh, ending of your life, perhaps, on, on the horizon, that of a loved one, financial trauma, uh, relational anguish, But God is allowing this so that we can see firsthand the extent of his power and the depth of his love. Why do I say that? Look what he does to Martha. He gives her the extent of his power. It's me. It's a person. Look at Mary, the depth of his love. He groans at the sorrow and the death that sin causes. So when I see someone suffering, this is maybe not going to sound very pastoral to you, but it is. When I see someone suffering deeply and super powerfully, I say, my God, must he love you so much? And they go, what? If he loved me, he wouldn't let this happen. I go, no, 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 you don't understand. John 11. John 11. He's allowing this so that you will get what is better, so that you will have what is best. We know this, which leads to our fifth point. There are worse things than death and better things than human flourishing. And I know that's completely upside down, opposite, and backwards, from our world's view of the world but it is biblical truth there are worse things than death and better things than human flourishing if all we ever think of is that death is the worst thing and happiness is the best thing then we will arrange and architect all of our lives around those temporary fleeting goals and our life is but a blip on the eternal timeline instead Jesus, through this passage, gives us a glimmer and a glimpse and a glance into eternity and we can organize our lives and believe. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps more fully and more centrally because it's good to be reminded there's worse things than death and there's better things than human flourishing. Those are not the goal. Glory is better than death. Let me just leave you with this. I'm Lazarus. God is is my help god called me forth while i was spiritually dead and now i'm alive the fact that he's already raised my spirit is all the proof that i need is that one day he will also raise my body and so for me and i pray for you my conversion my regeneration my saving was infinitely more significant than one day my physical death and i've been close wasn't that big of a deal It's not that big of a deal. I'm Lazarus. God is my help. And so I wonder, what is your name? What is really your help? If you don't have an answer for death, then I encourage you to receive John 11 because I want to remind you, as I did at the beginning, we're all gonna die! And if you don't have an answer to that truth, then I pray the Spirit of God will move you to believe. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this text, for the truth that you spoke and dead things came to life. You didn't institute a program, you didn't institute an institution to make things better, to slightly improve our situation, you took dead things and made them alive. And so God, I pray this morning, if there's someone here who does not know you, who does not have a real solution, To death, would you move their hearts? Would you equip them to believe? Would they believe? Father, for the rest of us who have been believers, would you impress upon our hearts again the centrality of belief? We are to place all of our weight in life on the finished work of your Son Jesus. May it be exactly as I have prayed, or even better. We pray this in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand for word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Want to remind you that uh, at the end of every service here at the downtown campus uh, we are inviting people to come and pray Uh, this morning we have Mike and Barbara Flory that'll be available here at the front Uh, If there's anything we can be praying with you about your things are going on in your life uh, about what you've just heard these folks are here they want to pray with you we'll do that again after our second service as well now May our God, who brought again Jesus from the dead, may he equip you for every good work. May he unbind you and set you free. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com.